Welcome to Right Spokane Perspective with your host, Tim. And Shannon. It's opinion, fact, information, and your alert system. Stay tuned and enjoy the show. And welcome back to Right Spokane Perspective. On this Thursday episode, we are revisited by author Steve Gorham. He is the author of Green Breakdown, his latest book, but he has a number of other books available. So you can go to stevegorham.com or find him on Amazon as well as other places that you can buy books. So we did a show, I don't know, several weeks ago talking about the alarmism and the things going on that will affect every consumer. It will affect people in other areas of the world that need our food production, that need our modern technology to help continue to improve the lives of people uh, in in other suffering countries, as we've done over the last hundred years. There's less people that starve, less people in poverty, and we should continue that. But these policies, of course, that we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago are taking us in the direction of net zero, like not zero carbon because everything's carbon. It's like net zero food, net zero prosperity, net zero lots of things. So we'll talk about that in just a moment with Steve Gorham after some inspiration. How about we talk about trusting God's foresight? While driving us to an unfamiliar location, my husband noticed that the GPS directions suddenly seemed wrong. After entering a reliable four-way highway, we were advised to exit and travel along a one-lane frontage road running parallel to us. I'll just trust it, Dan said, despite seeing no delays. After about 10 miles, however, the traffic on the highway next to us slowed to a near standstill. The trouble? Major construction. And the frontage road? With little traffic, it provided a clear path to our destination. I couldn't see ahead, Dan said, but the GPS could, or as we agreed, just like God can. Knowing what was ahead, God in a dream gave a similar charge to in change in directions to the wise men who'd come from the east to worship Jesus, born king of the Jews. King Herod, disturbed by the news of a rival king, lied to the Magi, sending them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I may go too and worship him. Warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, however, they returned to their country by another route. God will guide our steps too. As we travel life's highways, we can trust that he sees ahead and remain confident that he will make paths straight as we submit to his directions. Heavenly Father, we can't see the road ahead, but you can. Please give us discernment to know when a change in direction is coming from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we need direction and the GPS, uh, maybe the technology isn't always going to be there, but we should have some form of GPS. Maybe it's common sense, wisdom, discernment, and make sure that we don't cut off paths in our future so that sometimes an alternative route can be taken. But we see government cutting off paths of the current time and paths in the future because of mandates, alarmism. And, I, you know, I've got to go back and think about this because we had, and I can't remember, it's AOC. I always want to say all out crazy. So I forget her first name. It's Ocasio-Cortez. Ocasio-Cortez? Ocasio. Ocasio-Cortez. So she got into <laughs> Congress early on. Her big thing entering into Congress as a very well-experienced bartender was that Climate change was going to destroy us all. We had 12 years to go, 
there and it was all going to be over. So we had to solve climate change. And she said that Elon Musk had these rockets and he's going into space and he needs to help stop climate change by researching the effects of the sun and maybe take a rocket up there and, and take a sample of the sun so they can study this because, uh, oh, of course, they'd have to go at night. But um, you know, but that this is where these policies are come from, and we have a governor here in Washington who has foisted the highest gas prices in the nation on working families, and it's not good for the economy. It's not good for the environment. While it's blaming only, the businesses, mind yeah, you, right? It's only good for government coffers and those who benefit from those higher prices. So you know, we're gonna have Steve Gorham again, author of Green Breakdown, jump in here. Tim, great to join you again. It, well, it's been a crazy year. Uh, there was a headline in July, and it was in uh, it was in a number of places, but Fortune was one of them. And a scientist said that July could be the hottest month in 120,000 years. And so that headline was was zoomed through NPR and CNN, USA Today. Uh, the United Nations uh, chief said an era of global boiling has arrived. And your own governor, Jay Inslee, said the earth is screaming at us. I mean, we, we've had a bunch of crazy things. But that, <laughs> Jay that, Well, Jay Inslee's saying the earth is screaming at us. He's thinking about when he was a child and his mom would put the coffee pot on the stove. And when it was hot, <laughs> it made that loud screaming, whistling noise at you. Because the narrative now, it went to global warming, net to global like boiling. Like there, the the narrative is so insane. Well, those numbers are flat out wrong. Uh, there is there are mountains of evidence and oceans of evidence that say that today's uh, weather is not particularly warm, not historically warm. We've had uh, we've we've warmed about uh, one degree Celsius since eighteen eighty in one hundred forty years, about two degrees Fahrenheit Earth surface temperatures. But there are many multi century long periods in the last ten thousand years when it's been warmer than today. Now, that's when, you, when they, they drill in and they take these core samples. They can monitor the carbon in the well, climate. Well, there's, there's, there's a lot of different ways. There's a there's a glacier just north of you up by Juneau called the Mendenhall Glacier, and it's been receding for more than a century. And uh, environmental groups would put up posters showing the, the Mendenhall in 1880 when it was big and then today when it was small. But some scientists from... Uh, Southeast Alaska University went down into ice caves under the Mendenhall Glacier about uh, eight years ago. And, and underneath the glacier, they found uh, tree trunks that were still had roots in the ground and not one, but many of these. And they radiocarbon dated them and they found they were a thousand years old. And so, so a, thousand, a thousand years ago, there was no glacier here. There was a forest where today there's a glacier. So and obviously just, climate change is something that archaeologists have found uh, very naturally in, in, in other scientists where they geologists, look at, yeah. yeah, geologists, obviously. Yeah. All, all of the scientists that, that want to be honest have found artifacts of different kinds, you know, uh, different kinds of plant life that no longer live in an area or plant life that lives in an area that didn't before. So these are things that occurred well before modernization and, and definitely yeah. before uh, climate alar alarmism. These were times where uh, the way they managed their forest was forest fires and lightning and the way that they uh, did everything was by uh, fire. So, you know, looking at these global temperatures, they, you know, they have the boiling of the earth. Of course, if it's boiling, you know, and the water's getting hot, that's what's causing all these uh, hurricanes. End of uh, August, we had a hurricane hit Florida, uh, Hurricane Idalia. It was a Category 3, a strong storm. 
And President Biden got on uh, that very day and said, uh, you know, this is caused by man-made uh, global warming. This is caused by climate change. But kind of the crazy thing is that that uh, this year, that's the only hurricane that's going to make landfall in the United States. We're only going to get one this year that has come ashore. So the hurricane season, I, we hear about this every year. Of course, folks that live in the, the center of the country or in the northwest here, we it's not really something that's uh, – Right. A huge effect to us. So the the season is uh, what midsummer. It's to... about July to uh, to just about now. It usually ends the first week in November or so. So it's possible maybe uh, another one could maybe hit late, but probably not have a lot of pressure. It could be, but the the Atlantic's pretty empty right now. There's nothing going on now. The other thing is though. So and you hear all this press about how the storms are getting more hurricanes and they're stronger, but you can go right to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration NOAA. And, and they have data that show that counts all the U.S. hurricane landfalls. And we've had about 300 of those since 1850. And d- during the uh, 20th century, there were 170 of those that made U.S. landfall. 59 were Category 3 plus or stronger, 3, 4, or 5. And we have had a dozen years when we've had two Category 3s hit the U.S. But the interesting thing is that if you look at the data by decade, uh, back in the about uh, eighteen in the eighteen eighties and eighteen nineties, we were getting about twenty hurricanes per decade, or about two per year on average, and that has been declining now. Now, in in the twenty twentieth uh, twenty first century, we're getting about one and a half hurricanes, about fifteen so far that come. Less. Yeah, a, a little bit less. It's been trending downward. This year, we're only going to get one, and normally we have one and a half or two. So the data just that, that we're getting more and more and stronger storms just isn't supported by so the data. Are they going to, you know, it was global cooling. Now it's global warming is maybe some of the climate change is due to the level of taxation and the carbon of printing of money sent overseas. Maybe that's <laughs> where we need to go with the conversation. Or maybe now they've decided that new science has come out that, uh, this global warming is ending hurricanes, which is, a, uh, you know, affecting the oceans because we see this transition of the language yeah. and the science to, you know, we do get more money out of us. Well, the, the bottom line is that uh, Earth's climate is dominated by natural factors, effects of the solar system, effects of the Earth's axis, effects of the atmosphere, the oceans, the land and the sea. And carbon dioxide is a very tiny part of all that. You know, everybody's concerned about the rising carbon dioxide, but bigger effect is the water cycle. Earth's dominant greenhouse gas is water vapor, much, much bigger than carbon dioxide. And Earth's water cycle includes the oceans and the ice caps and all the rivers and lakes and the uh, water vapor in the atmosphere. It's got about a thousand times the energy of the carbon dioxide cycle. And that's what really drives changes in Earth's climate. And those are driven by the sun, of course, that water cycle not man-made emissions and, and a little bit of carbon dioxide. And of course the carbon dioxide in, in the science that we've discussed this in the past on the show that the world is greening to some extent because of the carbon dioxide, but we're actually at much lower levels than <laughs> a couple thousand years ago, according to ice cores and things that have been discovered in, you know, geological sites. So we see this desire to have net zero carbon no civilization has ever had net zero carbon. And when they were, you know, lighting things on fire because they discovered it, you know, the caveman, uh, that's when things were the greenest. Well, that triggers a question I'd like to ask your listeners to consider. 
what do cannabis growers know that the uh, EPA apparently doesn't know? Well, I think that uh, most listeners would be pretty upset about uh, asking about cannabis because they every time they drive around, you know, different parts of town. In fact, I think businesses are struggling in certain parts of our Washington state communities because people don't want to go into the area because of the odor that's created. It smells. And yes. that odor is created by super hyper-grown marijuana and to do that to have the quality of marijuana that would stink people out of business and out of the community they pump carbon dioxide into they those do rooms at 10 times carbon carbon dioxide is green any marijuana grower with his or her salt is pumping carbon dioxide into their greenhouse to make their crop grow bigger and faster well, and for anyone that doesn't believe us steve on this one they can go onto the internet and look for carbon dioxide machines, and they can find uh, small ones for greenhouses all the way up to large commercial ones for these big grow operations. Or go ahead and just so go take a tour of your local pot shop. So oh, it's yeah, not maybe. just cannabis, though. The, the top 45 of the world's food crops that provide 95% of our food all grow bigger and faster with higher levels of carbon dioxide. That's right. They get bigger fruits, they get bigger vegetables, bigger tree stems, bigger root systems. Literally, if there's one compound we could put into the environment that's absolutely great for the biosphere, carbon dioxide is that compound. Yet today we have every uh, university and every company counting their carbon dioxide footprint really very foolish. Well, if you had a, a carbon dioxide footprint that was was healthy, you could produce more food. And that's what we are doing, even though the carbon dioxide level hasn't really gone up. So the nice thing is we have food. We've got to have food. It requires carbon dioxide. It's it's plant food for our food. And I think this net zero idea, I like to eat. I don't want net zero food. So we're going to take a break so you guys can go grab a snack. Don't go anywhere. Come right back with some of that healthy food that grew on carbon dioxide. We want to thank God and you, the listeners, for the opportunity to continue the Right Spokane Perspective radio show and podcast programming. Listeners, it's because of your support we continue to bring you facts, commentary, and alerts on what's happening in local government, politics, and issues affecting us all. Please send your most generous support to Right Spokane Perspective, LLC, PO Box 7620, Spokane, WA 99207. Thanks again, and back to the show. And welcome back to this Thursday episode with Steve Gorham. He is the author of Green Breakdown. And I, I'm really hearing there's a green breakdown. It's going to be a green breakdown in the green back because we're going to have less value in our dollar for food. We're not going to be able to buy as much. There's going to be less of it. And the energy costs are going to be killing us. We're going to hit on that topic a little bit in this half because there are forms of energy that are less effective and pretty much have the same carbon footprint. So, Steve, jump back in. Tell us about these uh, insane ideas and uses of our land and resources for sources of energy that they're not renewable because you can't recycle them and uh, they don't work continually like, uh, say, hydropower. Right. Yeah. One of the things, by the way, Washington is, is very much blessed with hydropower. Uh, you're one of the places in the country that possibly could get close to net zero uh, because you could get rid of natural gas, probably use a lot of hydropower to back up wind and solar. Well, we could, but, but the problem is Unlike other states, we sell our hydropower to like California because yeah. our state doesn't legally consider hydropower green energy because <laughs> if they did, we wouldn't have any wind turbines look, you know, killing all the migratory birds. Yeah, you're building a lot of wind turbines. And by the way, the people all say wind and solar is cheaper. 
than uh, coal and natural gas. But if you look at what happens to the places where they are deployed, you find that is not the case. Uh, Europe, for example, I have a chart that I have been plotting for about six years, which plots the, the wind and solar of a nation, the watts per capita on one axis and the electricity price on the other axis. And Europe is the place where we have the most wind and solar deployed. And you would think that the nations that deploy the most wind and solar, if wind and solar is the cheapest, would have the lowest electricity prices. But it's exactly the opposite. You have a curve moving up, and the places like Denmark and Germany that that have deployed the most wind and solar have the highest electricity prices in Europe and probably in the world. They're about three times as expensive in the U.S. Well, when they talk about uh, than, renewable, than the U.S. Yeah, when they talk about renewable energies, and we we can look at just the example right here in the United States, we haven't really built refineries for you know fossil fuels in like 50 years and so we're still you know they've upgraded them technology wise and whatever we haven't built new plants in in so long that obviously they're still making what we need even with uh you know higher population granted we have cars that go twice the distance and things of that nature and and mechanisms that better use the energy but when you look at the uh, like the European systems and, and all this, the solar, what do we do with the solar panels when they're bad? I see pictures on the internet of cut up wind turbines being buried in Wyoming. They're, they're not good for the same time frame as a as a, a plant that was built 50 years ago that's still pumping out fuel for us. Yeah, there are some issues. We have uh, in uh, Iowa, for example, which is a pretty big wind state, their turbines are getting old and the blades have to be replaced. And they don't have a landfill in Iowa where they can where they can put them. They're they're too big, and so they're shipping them to Nebraska and Kansas so that they can be put into a landfill. Uh, solar cells, as you say, are the same in California, uh, which has had solar on rooftops for several decades now. A lot of those uh, solar panels are getting old; they have to be replaced. And um, to recycle them costs about twenty four dollars. And you get about four dollars worth of metals out of them if you recycle them. So it's a big losing proposition. So and that, if you send them to, so the send them to landfill, it costs about a dollar or two dollars. So, so nobody's going to recycle these things unless they get massive government subsidies. So the government's going to have to subsidize the same right. things yet again. So we, we subsidize the creation, the distribution, the installation of these products, and now we're looking at. Do we bury toxic materials and precious metals uh, in the ground that could have otherwise been used in energy systems we know work? Or do we, again, subsidize the non-renewable, obviously, energy to recycle them? Yeah, in Europe, they uh, they shred them and then they burn them. So, <laughs> and they emit carbon dioxide when they burn them. So well, hopefully, they're, they're, make- hopefully they're making some kind of energy uh, out of them when they burn them. <laughs> They probably are, yeah. There's some waste, so they are getting some energy, but they still are emitting carbon dioxide. Yeah, and, so, and a small uh, portion of, of returns if they would have just stuck with the energy formats that work. Well, there's a number of big problems. We talked about expense with wind and solar. Another one is the land area required. A guy by the name of Vaclav Smil, a professor in Canada, has written a whole book on the, uh, the land footprint required to produce electricity. And he's computed the area, including things like pipelines and mines and waste pits and all sorts of stuff. And so, if you set if you set nuclear at at one year, and I ask a, I ask questions to an audience, I say, well, which is more energy friendly, 
which is more environmentally friendly, a, an energy source that uses one uh, unit of land to produce one unit of electricity, or one that uses one it uses a uh, hundred units of land to produce one unit of electricity, and it ought to be pretty obvious. But when you look at it, if you set nuclear at one unit of, of electricity output for one unit of land, then uh, natural gas is about 0.8 units of land for one unit of output. Coal is about 1.4. But solar requires over 100 units of land to produce that one unit of electricity. Wind requires uh, about 35 up to over 800 units of land, depending on if you just count the, uh, the roads and, and the concrete pads for the towers or you count the whole area. Biofuels require 1,500 units of land to produce one unit of electricity. So renewables are, are not only costly, they, they're not really environmentally friendly. Uh, they take huge amounts of land. If we didn't have this fear of man-made warming, nobody would, would think they'd be environmental uh, tools. That's right. Well, then I look at the use of land when we're talking specifically about electricity. When you have hydropower, that obviously in some places, like the city of Spokane, we have hydropower that's right down the street from where there's businesses and homes that are using the power, right? And when you look at big solar fields or these uh, wind farms, they are a long ways away from where we need the power. And so yeah. the, the, right. the generation of power, by the time you have what they call line loss to there's the a end big, user... There's a big transmission expense, too. You have to build these transmission lines out to the remote areas and that's one of the reasons why when you deploy a lot of wind and solar you end up with much higher cost right well and and the line loss to me would would be another uh, big issue because you've got to expand the amount of you know solar field wind field that you have out in a rural area away from people because no one wants to look at them and then you have more line loss and it just gets exponentially worse the more you build yeah, there's another chart I, I uh, plot that that has the top 12 wind states in the nation and the rate of their electricity price increase. And Washington, by the way, is number 12 as of as of the year 2022, the 12th biggest uh, energy wind state. Now, the the national electricity average has increased 27 percent in the last 14 years, but eight of the top 12 wind states have all increased at a faster rate than the national average. And Washington's up about 36% over those 14 years versus the national average of 27%. So again, the evidence shows if you're building a lot of wind turbine towers and you're building transmission out to remote areas to collect that electricity, uh, your electricity prices are rising faster than, than everybody that's not doing that. And that's all been done through government policy because the energy corporations, I know that my parents and uh, their parents thought it was insane to do anything other than what we were already doing between nuclear and hydro. Uh, yeah, there was a, some LP gas that was brought in. We basically had more energy than we could use. We were selling it to places all around us and our power prices were very inexpensive compared to most of the country. And we've seen that yeah. change, but we also see the government changing who pays for what, because now we're shifting that cost. Like with our gas prices, where does that money go? It's not going to our infrastructure anymore. When we pay our power bills, we see more and more governmental taxes and fees on our utilities. Is that money going to create a effective power grid? I, I don't see that happening. 
Yeah, you guys are vying with California for the most expensive gasoline. Your electricity still is pretty low. I think you're about the lowest uh, uh, state right now. But if you go down a couple well, states to California. We at producing electricity, they should almost be paying us like in Alaska because we're <laughs> shipping it to other places. Just, you know, we put up with the power lines that are shipping it to California. It should almost be free here. I mean, I'm not, I know things cost money. Folks out there, don't panic. I'm not looking for a government handout here on the right Spokane perspective. But there was no reason for our government to put mandates on energy companies to go to these so-called renewables when we already had it. Right. I know. It's all it's all this fear that they, they all believe they can, again, they can make the storms less severe if, if they uh, put in all these renewables, which to me is, you know, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard of. That is... Uh, if, if that isn't superstition, I don't know what is. Well, I think we're starting to get to the point where we're not just affecting migratory birds, but we're also affecting the, you know, the climate as far as the wind is concerned, because we've got all of these wind turbines just on the hilltops everywhere. And that just keeps expanding. And so yeah. I'm, I'm wondering how much of that is, is affecting, you know, the climate and storms when you have that kind of disruption in the, the air movement that naturally would flow across the surface. There is some evidence for that. Uh, now, you mentioned the birds first. We kill about a million birds a year with wind turbines in the United States. But you're right. It, uh, some papers have been saying that that uh, winds are slowing down in certain on certain continents, and they think a lot of it is because of the wind turbines. Actually, one of the things that happened in 2021 in Europe was that the wind didn't blow for most of the year. And uh, the the electricity output from wind was down 20 to 30% for the year in Europe. And so uh, Europe uh, burned all kinds of natural gas in the year 2021. And three months be before the Ukraine invasion, their price of natural gas had gone up by a factor of five. And the price of electricity had gone up by a factor of five as well. And so they've they've had a uh, uh, what I call a transnational energy shock in the last two years. So they still have natural gas that's two and a half times as high as it was in Europe two years ago, four times as high as the U.S. And the electricity prices are three to four times as high. If you're in England, uh, you're shutting off you're shutting off your oven and you're not running your furnace. And and there's about there was a recent survey about thirty percent of the people in England. Um, are 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 shutting down their heat. They just can't uh, can't afford to pay the bills. Well, they shut down a lot of their natural gas too, and they in the recent you know having to do with uh, more political decisions, having to do with war and energy. Of course, was part of that because like Germany, they transitioned over to you know buying their energy from Russia, and yep. then it got more expensive. They didn't produce for themselves. The last couple of years, they've been more reliant on heating with firewood and coal and so they're they're starting to lose those uh resources and access to them so they're looking at possibly in the very near future being very cold yeah europe really ruined their energy system and in the first two decades of this century they closed a hundred nuclear plants in europe about a third of those in england about a third in in uh, germany and uh and they become very dependent, as you say, on natural gas imports. And so they're in, they're in a real world of trouble right now. The only reason their lights stayed on last winter, which is a very mild winter, was we were shipping liquefied natural gas from the U.S. and also from Qatar in big quantities. And that seems and to be they, another thing that I think the, the climate alarmists should be looking at is how much does it take to ship 
oil or natural gas from one side of the world to the other when they can produce it right there at home. Yeah, well, they, you know, that's again, that's another thing that Europe did. They, they, the uh, European community did a study in 2018 and identified uh, more than 40 shale fields in Europe uh, that contained oil and gas. And, but Europe decided to frack none of them. They just said, we're just not going to do this. And so they they closed the nuclear plants. They didn't do any fracking, and they've they've kind of laid their uh, their bed for quite a while. Heck, in, in Hungary, they they put uh, uh, wood furnaces back in the schools because they didn't have natural gas. In England, they were telling people not to shower or to shower with a friend. Well, which, you know, I think so, that which sounds real funny, but but yeah. their 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 uh, winter uh, energy bills were a couple thousand pounds. I mean, they were very very high. And, and we saw some of this happening on the East Coast last year with some fuel shortages for heating oils. I think yep. that history repeats itself only if we make the same bad decisions. Uh, you know, those, those colonial countries that America came away from, we should learn from yet again and avoid those high costs. If you want to look more into information so that you can have clear debates with your family and friends this Christmas at uh, you know the, the dinner table talking about global warming, because obviously you got to get that turkey to a certain temperature. And if you just want to eat it raw, then we can continue down this road of policy. If you'd like to make sure that that ham is cooked, you got to look into Steve Gorham. Green Breakdown. That's stevegorham.com. You can find his books. He's got a number of them. They're available on Amazon as well as other book purchasing sites. Thanks for your time, Steve. Thank you, Tim and Shannon. All that being said, we'll be with you folks again tomorrow. Bye-bye. You have been listening to Right Spokane Perspective. We are sponsored by Right Spokane Perspective, LLC, and made possible by advertisers you hear and contributions from listeners like you.